Hi, everyone. This is Mark Tornello from Accept, and you're listening to Rich and Scott on Focus on Metal. Hey, Metalhead, Scott Thompson here, welcoming you to episode 531 of Focus on Metal. So, hope everybody's doing good out there as we uh, limp along into uh, 2022. Live music just kind of starting to come back to life again. I know that uh, earlier today we were able to score some really nice tickets to uh, the Schenker Show here in Massachusetts. So, looking forward to that. Still a few months away. But uh, definitely should be a good one there with uh, with Shanker. I just can't get enough of seeing that guy live. And got lots of other stuff going as well. I know that in a couple of days, got the priest rolling through here and uh, tickets are still available. I don't know. I'm going back and forth about whether or not it's like a Monday night. And thing is, I could literally walk to the arena from the studio. So, uh, yeah, I don't know. Maybe I'll go and catch another pre-show. We'll see. Of course, if I do that, the whole walkover, I'll be thinking that I'm going to see uh, Rob Halford's cover band, as Richie likes to say. Anyways, this week, uh, you know, keeping with the live theme, back on the 4th of March, Richie headed out to the Worcester Palladium, which is one of the absolute great metal venues here in Massachusetts. And they've just, we've seen all kinds of great stuff there. And uh, I know that that is where... uh, Arch Enemy pulling through there, and there's just, like I said, lots of metal shows go through that. We've seen Primal Fear there, Accept's uh, been through there. I mean, I've seen uh, Schenker there twice, and uh, even the the Priest, Saxon, Black Star Riders, that gig was there. But uh, back on March 4th, Overkill was pulling back through there again, their, uh, their tour across the country with Prong that was rescheduled and delayed from uh, last year, and Richie headed out there to talk with Bobby Blitz, all about what is going on with Overkill. And yeah, I know you heard from uh, Mark up front and thought maybe we were doing Accept. Ah, sorry, no, we're not. But I don't have any IDs for anybody from Overkill, so I had to get somebody else from the East Coast. And of course, you know, Mark had to start TT Quick out here on the East Coast. So I thought, well, I'm just going to throw that in. That's as close as uh, thematically I uh, was going to get to Overkill. But anyways, uh, yeah, so Richie went out there, had a great talk with uh, Bobby Blitz Ellsworth and uh, just all kinds of good stuff. Stories from the old days, even doing a little bit of talk about Johnny Z and stuff. Because, I mean, why not? I mean, perfect guy to talk about when we talk about uh, about Johnny Z and stuff. So some some funny Johnny Z stories in here for you. And uh, just, you know, audio-wise, kind of a little odd because... Uh, Anywhere you do an interview in the Palladium, it's going to be some like booming room. And if it's before the show, you're because of the way the venue's laid out and stuff, you're going to get sound check noise. So definitely this one's got a lot of background noise and people walking through. And uh, I didn't even really touch base with Richie as to exactly which spot he did it in. But I have a feeling it was, you know, it could have been the stairwell or, yeah, it definitely could have been backstage as well. Or, I mean, heck, it could have even been out front by the bar. But uh, anyways, great talk this week with Bobby Blitz. So I am just going to shut the fuck up and uh, get to it. So, Bobby, I was looking at the schedule for the tour, all right? And the first thing I look at is the dates. And you're starting off by doing 12 shows in 12 days. We are? Yeah. (laughs) All right. Um, Have you ever done a schedule as tough as that before on consecutive nights? Oh, sure. How long ago are we talking Oh God! I think there was at one point. I mean, it's back when we were we had a lot more youth in us. But I mean, you, yeah. I, I think that just back in the nineties, we had done something like twenty-four in a row or something. I mean, it's not like it's not like it ever wore us down. I mean, you you collapsed at the end of it, but not while you're going through it because the energy is just a daily transfer from day to day. You know. Um, <clears throat> But probably the hardest part was the was the throat, you know? yeah. Uh, because that's that takes the you know the wear and tear. But again, the adrenaline and the energy threw it over the top. And I, you know, I always found, especially in the younger days, 
that I get in more trouble on a day off than doing the show. Because <laughs> <laughs> you want to burn off some steam. Yeah, I'd be like, you know, I'd be up all fucking night, I'd be yeah. drinking, I'd mm-hmm. be, you know, at, a, at another club and... You know, you're talking with a bunch of guys listening to music, you're yelling in their ears, and you still hurt yourself, you know. Um, but 12 shows, 12 shows, nothing. Nothing? No. Okay. That's pretty easy for us. All right. Now, I've seen you here twice. And the first time I saw you here, I think you might have been with Anthrax. And you were sick, and I think you cancelled the rest of the tour. Testament. Testament, yeah. correct. Um, and then there's the last, when I interviewed here a few years ago, Something happened to you on stage as well, but one of the roadies had to come out and help you off. And I'm just thinking, what's the sickest you've ever done a show and been able to pull it off? Well, it was probably that, the, the, the Testament show. Yeah. I was, I actually, I had pneumonia and it was, didn't know what was going on. And it, I, I had, it was a couple of days prior, I just, I couldn't get out of the bed. But then I kind of came back. I'd been in, we did a New York show. And I was feeling bad after that show. And then we did the Worcester show. And I was telling, you know, Dee Dee Verney, I'm like, stick a broomstick up my ass. Just keep me hanging. Keep me out there, you know. <laughs> I'll get through the show. Because I figured just motor, you know, muscling through it um, would be, you know, have positive results for what would follow after. But it, it, it didn't. I had pneumonia. I think it was the next morning I was in Buffalo. I was walking into the hotel and went face down for the And then I was I mean they hospitalized me for four days up there because I was playing with I was playing with pneumonia. You know, so they you know, it was it was pretty dicey, you know. Mm. So that's probably the sickest I've ever been is is that. Um, I've had other issues, you know, I've done this for forever. I had a small stroke in Germany in two thousand and two, I mean right in the middle of the show, you know, but it was I, I don't know if I was that sick afterwards. The the event was the event, but once I came out of it, I was I was out of it. You, you know what I mean? There was no residual effects. It was only a small stroke. It's like a, it's called a TIA. And you know, I mean, I was in a the hospital there for four days too. But but that fucking that Worcester show was that was just mind over matter, mm. mind over pneumonia. <laughs> do, you, do you tend to get sick on every tour? That someone just gets sick and it travels, and you just have to deal with it. It's just kind of the way it is, you know. It's you travel in a bus like this. It's like, you know, it's just like a, it's like a petri dish. Yeah, it's yeah, just yeah. Full of germs, and it's um, you know, once one guy gets sick, you know it's going to happen. You know it's going to get to you eventually. And you're the singer, of course, and you're the one that'll affect you the most because of your voice. Yeah, either I would assume me or, or Jason, because I mean that's more the two physical. Yeah, the physical. Yeah. You know, that's um, you know, I mean, not the guitar playing is not physical, or or the the fact that these guys move around, but I think it's a little bit. It gives you a little bit more of a break than if you were the drummer or the singer. You know, singing with the flu or mm. you know a cold. Yeah, you're apprehensive at all about getting back on the road because. Tours are being scheduled and then they're being postponed again. And what about yourself? Did you have any like reservations about doing it, or did you just say "fuck it, let's go out and do it"? On the you know on the way in, you were thinking about it because I mean we're not you know in the financial position with all of the protocol that preceded the present yeah. day. Yeah. To say okay, we got two guys have it, so we're going to all sit in the Radisson for ten days, and then we'll pick up the tour afterwards. We just can't do that. Yeah. I mean, that's kind of the point of doing sixteen shows. Like if we can get out and do a quick hit, and you know, get through this with no problems, it'll be successful. Uh, so prior to to coming out in the road, it obviously went through my head a lot. You know, and a lot of it based on on the money end of it, just because you you, you don't want to be. You sign contracts, you still have to pay for the bus for X amount of days. It's mm-hmm. not like somebody gives you a refund. Yeah. You know, so the, you know, the, the idea, um, you know, we wanted to do whatever we could to kind of stay safe. But conversely, once you're out here, who cares? You, you, know, you know what I'm saying? It's like, if I worry about it, I'm not going to enjoy it. Yeah. And, you know, just doing one show last night, which is my second show in, in uh, you know, since the COVID Started, which is almost two years ago to the day, mm-hmm. we were touring at that time. Um, it just felt fucking great, you know. It's just like it's like being home again, you know. This this is where quote unquote we belong. So I, I'm not thinking about it right now. If it happens, it happens. I'll deal with it when it you know when it comes up. 
it, it must have been different though you're in a band you're five guys in a band scheduling because you probably have other things outside of Overkill that you do for income and you're trying to schedule tours and you don't know whether they're going to happen and th- now this one is thankfully happening it might be opening up a lot more now and it's a lot easier to schedule but it, before now it must have been difficult well you know somebody asked me you know what was the worst time you ever had in the band and I had been doing the interviews a, a, a Swiss guy who's a friend of mine he just asked for like a little update what we're doing with the record he asked me what was the worst time I said it's right now you know because you know it, it's, I'm not just whining about not being on stage but it just it was like instantaneously everything I had done for a 35 40 year period was removed from my life not everything but everything live mm-hmm. um, so it became kind of uh, you know you had to kind of feel your way through the whole thing you know yeah. I mean what the fuck are you going to do and you're mm-hmm. right I mean there's, there's other ways to make some cash and you had to you know we had to keep busy and we started writing a record and you know all of that stuff but it was um, it was really unsettling with regard to having a normal activity or a normal part of our job just removed I mean just like cut off at the legs not like oh maybe next week maybe you just knew it was going to go for a year at least or years you know once and every time the government gets involved with something and I'm not saying they were wrong for trying to do guidelines but you know that it's going to be big news it's not going to be just this temporary situation as soon as there was mask mandates and Fauci was talking on television every day giving everybody updates you knew that this was going to be long term mm. so mm. now you mentioned there Bobby that you know you're doing this 35 plus years if I had said to you a couple of years into your career that you'd still be doing it 35 years later would you say it was fucking crazy yeah I would have left right <laughs> I would have said, who's the fucking nut who just came out? <laughs> <laughs> like, when in your career did you think, wow, I can actually make a career of this like, and it's going to last for a long time? Was there one album you did? or well, you Is know, that easy a question to answer? It, it's a hard question to answer because, you know, <clears throat> you know, this was born in the 80s through uh, Megaforce, through... You know, combat records or mm-hmm. Metal Blade. You, you know what I'm saying? Yeah, and, yeah. And then the big guys started noticing and grabbing the Megadeths and the and the Slayers and the Metallicas and I mean even bands like us are testament. You know, you ended up on a major major label. But it, there's something about going to a major label where you think to yourself, oh, now your time is limited because you know that's where the you know you're you're more disposable. It's really about the flavor of the day. You know what I mean? Sure, there's all different kinds of music, all different kinds of genres. You can always find a home somewhere. But major labels are about, you know, they're about, especially back then, about cash. Yeah. You know, physical, financial production. Um, So I I kind of felt that it was waning um, in the 90s. But I think the good thing was, is that we got dropped from the majors. We did find a home. Uh, we were down in uh, oh for God's sake CMC 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 Records mm-hmm. down in uh, Raleigh, North Carolina, and they were picking up a bunch of bands because they saw value. Yeah. I think they had Accept, they had us, uh, so they had some some good metal yeah. you know, going on there. And then I, it, that kind of gave me the opportunity to look at it like, oh, I mean maybe we can do this. It's just an adjustment phase to to find that right home. But then grunge came in. And you kind of start to think, and it was right around the same time, grunge came and became hugely fucking popular. Mm-hmm. And, it, you know, I'm, I'm saying, sure, there were cousins to each other, but this is more, um, this is a more of an energy-filled type of a thing, where the grunge scene, to me, always was uh, a little depressive, you know, emotionally kind of depressive, um, you know, and, and struck a chord with a lot of people. Mm. And I thought back then that it was going to be kind of hard. But that being said, we... We still kind of pushed through. I mean, when a lot of bands kind of went home um, and said, okay, I'm done, you know, I'm not doing this, we kind of made this love of ours into a business and understood how to make that happen in the 90s. And we bought from label to label. We were on, uh, got uh, SPV over in Europe, and we were on Spitfire over here in the States. We went to a place called Regain over there. So, 
we kind of made it happen. So I realized that even in the, the bad times or the times that were less fruitful, there was still a place for us or for this. So my feeling was that by the end of the 90s, I knew that we were going to be doing this for, you know, for the duration. Okay. What's the worst decision a record label made when you were on the major? Oh, boy. The worst decision? There must have been, there must have been some, because you... In a small label, you're like a bigger fish. But when you're on a major, they might not understand the genre. There might be a lot of other bands on the label as well, and it all depends on if you have a good A&R guy on the label, and then you hear these horror stories about people getting fired and all that. But surely the label must have made a decision that you didn't agree with, maybe to try to push in a direction you didn't want to go. You know, I, I gotta say, I, I know a lot of people think in those terms, but I don't think that the label bigwigs necessarily understood the scene itself. They understood music and how to sell records. And they, like, even when we were at Atlantic, they had hired a guy that I knew for years. He was a, a metal DJ, a guy named John Martichone. And he was really working closely with us. So we were still in pretty good hands. You know, so, the, and there was no, oh, you know, no profanity on the records. I mean, they would take it and censor it because they, they'd want an MTV video for you to fucking there. Yeah. And, they, they, and we would never take it out. We would just put it in backwards. So it sounded, you know, they, they just altered the tape. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. It yeah. sounded like foreign language or something. Yeah. just popped in there. <laughs> but I can't say that they made bad decisions for us because they were, you know, they were a promotion machine that was based on doing that promotion by paying for it. Videos, tour support, making sure we were out there, appearances. So they didn't. They didn't get in our way. You know, they just didn't get in our way. Do I think they understood it fully, like this guy John? I do not. But I do think that they, um, you know, they were smart enough to say, "Hey, we don't understand this specifically. We need to get somebody who does, and have him run that." Mm. And I think that that worked out well for us. So, so Bobby, when did you get savvy to the business end of it? Because you hear a lot of musicians years ago, there was people hired to take care of all of that, and then they get burned. So when 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 did the light go off with you saying, I have to really start to get to understand that part of it now rather than just making the music? Well, it wasn't, I don't think it was necessarily by choice. Um, everything was changing, you know? It was that time that where, where we made it to CMC Records when the grunge scene did come in. Mm -hmm. uh, we, our management, um, kind of backed out, uh, we decided, you know, with them that we'd be better off on our own because of, you know, we had to be more cost effective. It was just that simple. And we weren't paying 5% to a management back then. We were giving them 20%. That's a lot of fucking money. Yeah. You know, so if, if we could save that 20% by doing it ourselves, we'd have a, you know, we'd have a better cash flow to be able to get out there, be visible, do our own promotion with, you know, invest in ourselves type of a thing. So I don't think we necessarily wanted to. I think that the times dictated that we had no choice but to learn if we wanted to continue. Because who's going to manage us if uh, if, we're not, if we don't have the money to pay them? Yeah, yeah. But, but for us, um, that 20% became huge because we could pay guys. Yeah. We were always the dude, you know, we were always that band. It wasn't like, okay, you know, if we don't take a loss... You know, you got to take a loss too. Dee Dee and I said, no, you guys get paid first. So the the idea was that we were building a solid business, and not by design, but just by by need and necessity. Was know? it was it a steep learning curve? Was it was it tough in the beginning, or did you kind of understand a lot of it anyway, and it came pretty quickly to you? Well, we were, we were paying attention all the way along. I mean, okay. you know, I mean, it wasn't that you know we you know we. We're understanding publishing by the first record. We were understanding record budgets by the second one. We were understanding tour support by the third one, uh, video budgets. You know, so we were understanding this stuff. We and, and I think the managers we had were perfect for us. There were a couple of guys that ran a club in New York called Lamore in yeah. Brooklyn. Mm -hmm. Two brothers, George and Mike Parente. And they had a third. Um, Richard Sanders, who went on to Sony and did you know great things over there. I mean, he was working with Whitney Houston at one point, you know, like personally. And <clears throat> these guys took the time to let us know what they were doing and why they were doing it. You, you, if you follow me, not just like oh, I got you a publishing advance. You know, this is what we're going after because of this, because of that type of thing. 
So I think a lot of that just kind of soaked in, you know, to us that we, you know, we had an understanding of it, whether we were paying attention that we were going to eventually take it over or whether we were just interested, we still knew how this thing worked. So, um, you know, right from production all the way up to record deals, we were, we were involved. So. Wow. Wow. That's good to know because you hear stories about certain musicians, they'll ask about these things and the, the managers, they don't, don't want to tell you. Yeah. Well, I think, I think that, I think a bunch of that has changed. I mean, I, I, I know in, in our genre, you don't really hear about that stuff anymore. Yeah. But, you know, in that pop and rock genre of the 70s and the 80s, I mean, they're fucking horror stories, you know? I mean, the Billy Joel story, the... God, what was the guys who got ripped off the... the it's in Hard Gun, the movie, isn't it? Those guys, the musicians? Who were the guys? Oh, Badfinger. Remember the Badfinger yeah. thing? And they got yeah. ripped off by the American manager. They He scored like a seven-record deal and, and, and he got half the money for seven records. <laughs> he took his fucking cut on the whole seven and he gave them the rest to live on and they had no fucking money. Mm. You know, they had no money to, to complete their deals. Mm. You know, I mean... I don't ever hear that stuff in, in our genre, probably because it's not that kind of a money genre. You know what I'm saying? It's not that, you know, it's it's more conservative when it comes to when it comes to what record advances are. So. I think as well as that, Bobby, the audience for this type of music aren't as fickle as they might be for other genres. So you kind of know who your audience is. Oh, sure. And I think that helps as a band to cater for the music we're going to make, saying, look, we know, we're not going to like, we're not going to do an acoustic album now. You know, this has got to be a fucking heavy overkill album because that's what we're good at and that's what the fans are going to want. You know something, I think that for sure, I mean, even the genre itself, is a niche, it's a niche market yeah. that you're looking at. You mm-hmm. know, you have to understand that it's not about world domination. I mean, the only metal band in, in from our era that has world domination is Metallica. Yeah. Every other one is a niche market. I mean, there's degrees of it, you know, how many customers they have or how many fans they have. But I think that you... Once you understand that and accept it, um, it becomes a motivation to to please that niche market. Besides yourself, obviously. Mm-hmm. I mean, listen, if I wasn't on this side of the microphone, I'd be on the other side. I mean, that's just, you know, in, in the audience somewhere, standing, you know, I'm, geez, I'm in my 60s now. I'd be standing in the back having a beer, not in the pit. Yeah. <laughs> but, but you follow me, you know what I, I mean? Do. So, so I, I, have a, I have a love of it anyway. So, I mean, for me, it's... Uh, uh, for me, it's the, the perfect place to be to understand that niche market and uh, and how they keep this thing rolling. Mm. So, is the new record is it done? Mm. More or less. Yeah, I'm still writing. Lyrics or music? Just lyrics. Yeah. Okay. Um, the guitars are recorded. Um, it's one of those things I, I'll always take right up until the time that we're going in. Uh, I mean, I'll be changing things while I'm singing it too. Seriously? <clears throat> yeah. I mean, just you're just it, you're very picky as a lyric writer. Yeah, it keeps it fresh. You know, it also keeps it fresh. It's about word choices. You know, you look at them, sometimes you just come up with the, the simplest thing, and it's, you know, it's the jewel that makes the whole song shine for me lyrically. Okay. You, you know what I mean? One little phrase, um, um, or, or just, uh, you know, something, one that follows another that follows another. And, mm-hmm. and they're the, they're just hops across, and it sets up an absolute tone for me um, to complete that song. And I also, you know, if, if I had a record in a can kind of a thing, if it was done and written, to me it's not fresh anymore. Even, you know, even if it has not been recorded yet. And, and I say that because I like it to appear fresh to me. Because when that appears fresh to me, I notice the nuance of change from record to record. A lot of people say oh, Overkill's, you know, the same, you know, one-trick pony, same dog and pony show, you know, it's... It, to me, I'd say, God, there's a change on every record or a different approach, or I try to make myself a better singer, or I'm adding melody, or, you know, there's fucking no harmonies on the first ten records, and then, you know, for the last six or eight, I've, I've put harmonies on it, you know, in, in the vocals. So there's always some kind of a little difference, and I, and I, I need that time, or going into it, uh, gives it uh, a sense of immediacy. Do you like to record your vocals quickly? Like, are you tough on yourself in the studio when you're singing? No, I'm not that tough. I just have to be prepared, that's all. I'd rather not be reading lyrics, I'd rather have them in my head. Um, yeah? 
Yeah, I mean, I, I do a real simple version of compilation. Um, I go in, I sing the song three times. Usually the first and second one's not great because you're just warming up. And then I go back and I sing it another three times and I listen back in, in the cans and I can tell the difference in it. Myself and the engineer I use go and comp hold it. And I just come right back out and double it. Just, just go sing it again right over the top of everything. But I do that in sections. Mm. And it's, so I'm not that part of myself. Like, I'm, I'm looking for an energy that's, that's based on that immediacy I said in the, in the last answer. That, that kind of, uh, it's here, it's now. The feel. It's, it's right. The feel is correct. So that, that's what I'm looking for. Not, not musical perfection. Okay. So you will record the vocals and then that's it. You won't go back a few weeks later and sing the songs again. You think once you're done, you're done, and that's it, you're, you're good to go? Yeah, well, I mean, you know, it takes me a day, uh, a full day to sing each song. Um, I look, that's the way I like to do it. Okay. It's not even a full day, it's my full work day. I'm usually done in four hours or something. I, I don't want to blow myself out for tomorrow. Mm -hmm. So I do that, and I have that first song now for the next ten, or the next nine songs that I'll be completing. I'll be still listening to that first song all the way along. And sure, I could be changing it somewhere. I could come back in, do a change on the 11th, on the 12th day, you know, something like that, say, I don't like this chorus, I have something better now, let's, you know, let's insert something different. Hmm. I want to ask you about Phil Demo, bringing him on this tour. Um, you've played him before in Metal Allegiance, haven't you? Yeah, Metal Allegiance, and uh, I did a record with Phil uh, called BPMD. Yeah. And the 70s covers with uh, Mark Mingy on the bass and Mike Portnoy on drums. Okay. So, like, it was a no-brainer then. I'll call Phil up and get him. Because he seems to be, I don't know if I'm using the right phrase, he's like a Swiss Army knife guy, like he's filling in. <laughs> do you know what I'm trying to say? Absolutely. And he can do everything. So he's filling in for this band, he's filling in for you guys now. He's... Had, I think Violence announced the tour at the end of the year. He's going out with them. Yeah, I just saw something. Yeah, that. so to have a guy come in like that, and I, how much rehearsal did you have to do with him, like to get the set down? Two days. Two days. <laughs> <laughs> he was getting ready at home. Okay. Yeah. Oh, now we did one other show with him, a place called the Wellmont Theater in Montclair, New Jersey. We did that in November, um, and we did uh, four days rehearsal. Okay. And we kept this set similar. Um, we just uh, swapped out five different songs. So he was right on it. He walked right in. I mean, that's, that was part of the beauty of this guy is that he walks right in. Prepared. Yeah, prepared. Super I mean, prepared. Uh, you know, and almost like a chameleon to your band. You know what I mean? Sure, he's got his own gig, his own style, and we let him noodle the way he noodles, but he chameleons in to the band. It becomes what was to just make it as good as it was, or better than it was. Okay. And I, I, you know, I really like that. I mean, I really miss not having Dave there. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I just love Dave. You know, he's he's just a huge part of this, and hopefully he'll be back with us, you know, soon. Mm. Um, but having Phil is a, is a true blessing to have you know somebody that can come in and make it feel like overkill. You know? Was he the first name on the list? Yeah. So sure. you just looked out there and he was available. Yeah, we just. I mean, I. I mean, I like Phil too. You know, and, and Didi was asking me about him. I said, he, I mean, he's a great choice. You know, I mean, Didi and I were going back and forth. What about we get a young shredder? Because if Dave doesn't get back, we have this young shredder guy who, you know, love to be in this position. Um, I said, I think it's got to be. Because I said, I think Dave comes back, and and I think that we can't. We would never disappoint with Phil Demo. There's not, not a chance, you know? Mm -hmm. But we thought of Phil um, as number one, uh, Alex Skolnick, um, and um, I think it was right at the time when Mark Rizzo left uh, Soulfly. Okay. And Mark lives really close to me. Okay. So. Um, East Coast guys, because it's an East Coast run of shows, you're probably looking for a guy on the East Coast. Um, if it was gonna be long-term, yeah. Yeah. Uh, Phil's obviously the West Coast. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. Uh, but the uh, and Alex is now in Brooklyn and, and uh, Marcus in Jersey by me but Phil said yes so we didn't have to go to the other two so. okay well you looked out there so I just got a couple of questions before I leave you go Bobby yeah um, I have to ask you about Johnny Z who passed away last month I don't know whether many people have been asking me about him I only had the opportunity to interview him for his book you knew him really well right tell me a funny story about Johnny we had, you know, Johnny was an idea guy. 
I never met a man who had more ideas in a 24 hour fucking period. You know what I mean? Yeah. And some of those fucking ideas were just laughable. I think that the majority were. But three a day would be fucking brilliant. You know what I mean? Where you just go, how's this fucking guy doing this all the time? Well, in any case, we were doing the first record. We were really excited about it. Johnny had a, a deal with a studio up there called Pyramid. Pyramid's not Alex Perrialis. Yes. And um, he had an apartment, a garden apartment. He would put his bands in so that we'd have, you know, we didn't have two hotels. We'd have two bedrooms, pull-out couch, kitchen, refrigerator. It was fucking perfect for us. A couple miles from the studio. We had a car. We were up there for a month working. And we finished the record. And John's coming up the next day. And we went out and started celebrating. I mean, to the point of turning into a melee, to a big fucking <laughs> fisticuffs with a whole bunch of locals. <laughs> Welcome to our town. Oh, it was fucking just unbelievable. <laughs> and it didn't end in the bar. I mean, and I'm not talking like there was a couple of punches. I mean, we were hitting each other with long neck butt bottles. Wow. <laughs> okay, it's a good night out then. And these guys, <laughs> these guys knew where we were staying and we, we got out of there. Perry Alice pulled us out of there. We got out there, we were back to the apartment, they came to us in the apartment. And they brought more guys. Wow. So the fight ensued and ensued and ensued. I mean, the police finally came and they took off and there was, I mean, there was, it was pretty big. But every fucking stick of furniture in the apartment was broken. That's what the fight was like. Every fucking piece. I had a, a fucking head like the elephant man. I had been hit by the right the fucking eye with a two by four. And I was like, my head was so small. Well, in any case, we're, we were worried John's going to come up here. He's going to throw us off the label yeah. for wrecking his fucking place. Yeah. He wants it. He sees it on her. He wants it. He's, if there's blood on the fucking walls, I'm telling you, it's like a fucking massacre, right? He goes, he looks around, he goes, Marshall, get Karam on the phone. Tell him Blitz beat up 15 rednecks by himself. <laughs> I swear to God, by the time I got home, I had a reputation as big as the state of New Jersey. <laughs> Did he ever lose his temper with you guys? Did he ever lose his temper with you guys? Did you ever see? Was he ever angry with you? No, I mean we've disagreed about things, but he never lost his temper. No. Okay. I'm just a sweet dude. He loved what he did. I, I I got that impression when I interviewed him. He loved the music, yeah. like pa passionate, <laughs> fiercely passionate, and protective about the bands as well. I think. He he owned a um, uh, you know, a place called Rock and Roll Heaven which was a brick and mortar uh, record shop, primarily imports from from Europe. Mm -hmm. You know, you could go in there and get the new Destruction record or Venom's Black Metal or something like that. Yeah, yeah. Or the Overkill demo. Yeah. And, uh, but it started in a flea market, right? And so he was just in this flea market. And you'd go down there because you, you could, you know, this was like a central meeting point on a weekend for people who were into this stuff. You'd run into all sorts of people. You'd be exposed to all kinds of music. Johnny started knowing people from that uh, first name. Well, in any case, he f figures out how to get Venom over here for the first U.S. show. And he works with the guy who managed us later, a guy named George Parente. Mm -hmm. And he put them in a place called the Paramount Theater out in uh, Staten Island, New York. Great place. And... Johnny's telling him it's going to be fucking great. It's going to sell out. And George is a little worried about it because he's never heard the music or anything before. In any case, it's the day of the show. And I just heard the story. It's the day of the show. And Johnny calls George at the place. He goes, George, I'll be there in like 15 minutes. you got to come out. you got to come out and take a ride with me. you got to. He's, Johnny, I'm fucking, I'm up to my ears trying to get this show happening. We're running away. you got to meet me. All right, I'll meet you out in front in 15 minutes. George comes out, Johnny's sitting in an old Jaguar, right? And he, he goes, get in. He goes, ah. he sits down in the car with him. And they take off in the Jag, and Johnny pushes a cassette in, right? And it's Metallica's, uh, some of the tracking for Kill em All. Okay. Right? And he says to George, they're gonna be playing stadiums someday, right? <laughs> he was right. He was right, I mean, really <laughs> prophetic, right? If you think yeah. about it. And George is like, what are you talking about? 
you know, and George just told me the story. I never knew I never knew that story, but we were talking about Johnny like you and I. Yeah. And he got on the phone with me and told me that story. And I said, man, that is, that is John Z. That's perfect. Did you keep in touch with Johnny? Did you see him over the years? You yeah. did? I saw him last, uh, the, the COVID tour that got cut down Yeah. was uh, in Orlando, House of Blues, was the last time I saw him and Marsha and uh, his daughter, Ricky. And I guess it was about two days before he died. Or Johnny died, I think, on a Tuesday. But it, so it was maybe the Thursday or Friday prior his daughter called me, and because his birthday's in March, and uh, she goes, we're planning a big party. It's gonna be in Orlando at the House of Blues when you guys are there. You know, we just wanna get you and Dee involved. I'm like, sure. Johnny's turning 70. I'm like, how's he doing? Oh, you know, he's got hospice, it's in the house, but we think he's gonna be around another year. I mean, this is like, you know, four days later, he's dead. He's dead. You know, so the, you know, there was always that. Thing. I got. I'll tell you funny stories. You know, sometimes when you write your record, it just hits you like you're, you're working on shit all day, and it just doesn't come out right. But you're laying there in bed, and you don't know why you can't sleep, and and you're thinking, and then it starts playing over in your head, and you go, "There it is. That's that fucking thing I was looking for." And I would go down to my office where I have like a little studio, and I would fucking track, or I would, you know, I'd make notes. It's like two o'clock in the morning, you know, and it, and my phone rings, and I look, it says John C. I'm like, oh fuck, this can't be good, you know, two o'clock in the morning. Yeah. And and I went, uh, so I answered, the Johnny, what's happening? Everything well? Bobby, it just came to me. This is the year of Bobby Blitz and Overkill. I said, this is why you fucking calling me at two o'clock in the morning. Nobody's died. No, nobody's died. It's just I had to get this out. I'm like, okay, man. I'm with you. <laughs> Still coming up with the ideas. Yeah, I mean, we're, I mean, we're close, you know? I mean, uh, you can't, you know, we can't thank, we can never thank him and Marsha enough, you know? And, yeah. And, and they really gave us, uh, saw something in us that others didn't. We used to save our, our rejections. You know, we would send, you know, a record company something. I, and I think we... We went after Anvil's label, which was Attic up in Canada. We went to all the metal labels we could find. And I remember one of them, we had in our studio, we had all the rejections up on the wall to use it as motivation. And one of them, I forget the label, one of them said, um, at this time we're not interested. Uh, the reason is you do not stand out, you do not stand out like a naked Playboy bunny. <laughs> Wow. At a cocktail party. I was like, I don't know what this fucking guy's thinking, but that's wow. uh, we're saving that. <laughs> so it was uh, it was motivational, yeah. you know, and, and and you know, amazing that um, you know that they paid attention to us. And I think that's because we were local guys. We were always down their store. True. And we let them. You know, he sold our demo. He sold our first EP, and then. I think it was Marsha who actually said, we, we got to take these guys before somebody else does. Yeah. <laughs> you know, so. Do you know that Taking Over was released in March 1987? It's 35 years old this month. This month? Yeah. Well, now I do. Yeah. I knew it was 87. I wasn't aware it was March. Yeah, yeah. Wow, that's great. Yeah. So, does that, do you think, does those things come up in your head, like anniversaries? Like a lot of fans make a big deal of anniversaries on albums and, and they might say, this album is a classic, we want you to play the whole record. Is that something that you think of at all? Um, we haven't discussed it yet. We, we were actually, we wanted to go over and tour Europe, but we wanted a new record, but we didn't want to waste the record during COVID. Yeah. Um, you know, the, the life of a record uh, in this genre doesn't last forever. And, mm -hmm. and I'm not talking about the love of it. Yeah. But I'm talking of the, you know, how long it's visible, you know, how long it sells. Um, and the best way to, to extend that life is to do a U.S. and then consequently afterwards a, a, a European tour. Mm -hmm. um, and that's how you extend the life of that record, only by weeks or months, but it's not. Uh, but we, Didi and I talked, we said, well, I don't want to waste the record, but if we can get over to Europe, maybe we should do the Ironbound record. You know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. uh, it's, it's 10 years old and we could do you know, every song off it, play it in order, and then just throw in some, some classics. But that was not based, I don't think, on our principles. It was our principles being formed around COVID. You know yes. what I'm saying? Yeah. Uh, you know, it was how we can do this and still play. So that was one of the ideas back then. Okay. You obviously have the stories, Bobby. This final question. Um, you ever thought about writing a book? Oh, I don't know. I mean, I, I, yeah, I've been asked, 
you know, a couple guys of the, you know, the ghostwriter types and stuff. I, I don't know. I, I don't know if I would. You know, I always think that when somebody writes a book, it's more about it's over. Let me tell you what happened. Not about, and I like to think that regardless of my age, <laughs> I have no sleep till Social Security, right? But, they, <laughs> but uh, that we're still, you know, vital. Uh, we're still relevant in, in the current day, you know, and I think a book would be about talking about when we weren't relevant. Okay. You know what I'm saying? It would be coming from a perspective when we were less relevant. Um, so I don't know. I, I don't think that that would be the thing. And if I did, I, I don't think I would say, oh, you know, we got a little fight here with Bobby Gustafson and he left the band or that kind of shit. I, I would, you know, I got a ton of fucking information and stories in me, like the ones I just told you. Yeah, yeah. You exactly. know, and I think that that would be a, a lot more fun reading than um, just the history of the band. I remember my, my, my last wife had told me, she goes, you are just some fucking storyteller. And I said, thank you. She goes, no, bullshitter. <laughs> <laughs> they both end in ER. <laughs> Do you read other musicians' memoirs? Like Frank Bello, who you know you obviously know Frank. He brought a book out last year. Did you did you I read, read it? it no. Do you read other musicians' biographies at all? Well, I mean I Yeah, but I I, I, I don't I don't think I've read anybody's that's not in my mind, iconic, you know. Yeah. I mean, I, I, mean I, I love the Beatles, you know. So I read Paul McCartney. So I read John Lennon's. I, I read two on Keith Richards. My, my ex-wife thought I had a crush on two. Like a crush <laughs> on I got, I got pulled off of, out of the line in Australian immigration. You know, he said, ah, oh. and put your bag up here, sir. Nice guy, you know. Tough as fucking nails, big mustache with wax in the end of it. It's just awesome. And he, he goes, starts going through my bag, and he goes, "Okay, I see we have some tobacco here, and we have a book on Mr. Keith Richards. What would Keith Richards do? <laughs> Anything else in common with Mr. Richards, Mr. Oldswood?" <laughs> wow. Yeah, and I'm like, I'm like, I'm blushing. I'm like, boy, the guys, compare me to Keith Richards. This is awesome. <laughs> he, he was gonna go through my bag for heroin, you know. <laughs> Cocaine heroin. Wow. But it was, uh, I read those books. I, I, I mean, I, I like those iconic ones. I read something about Steven, Steven Tyler, Ozzy, you know. Yeah. You read a lot when you're on the road? Because that, 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 you know, if you're reading, people aren't going to talk to you so you can save your voice. Oh, that's a good point. I never thought of that. <laughs> Jeez, if I could do this another 37 years, I'd join a fucking book club. <laughs> so you do, you do read a lot on the road? A little bit. I mean, I think less now than I used to. Okay. Um, you know, I mean, I, I think, and I think a lot of that is because of the phone. Oh, definitely. You know, I mean, I, it's it's just there, and there's I'm reading the news, I'm reading, you know, the uh, the blabbermouth. I'll go through sometimes. See who's releasing a new record. I'm a big hockey fan, and a baseball fan. I mean, mm-hmm. it's all right there at my, you know, on the table. Okay. Put it in your hand. So when do you think the new record's coming out? Do you have a? Does the label have a release date yet, or? Well, we're planning on a uh, a Euro tour April of 23 it's being booked now so it's got to coincide with that and you're doing shows you're actually playing a show in Dublin I think in May yeah we got yeah. Dublin and Belfast yeah um, that's that's connected to something called Manifest in the UK okay um, <clears throat> then there's some whacking crews and you know maybe one off here and there but it's not it's not our tour. It's like we're going to be on festivals and etc. Oh, in the summer you're doing the festival circuit again. Yeah. Okay. Whacking so, the cruise, Manifest, something in Spain. And do you get a chance to hang around at those festivals and look at the other bands, or do you have to really get in and out? It depends. Um, Whacking, I will. Wacken, I can. I'd love to go see that. Jesus. Yeah, I mean, that's like... The premier metal festival in the, the world. Mecca of metal. It's sold out before the bands are even announced. Like, that's amazing. Yeah, yeah. How many times have you done Wacken? I think our first time was 90... It was in the 90s, 95. Your, your residence there then, at this stage then. <clears throat> we were booked by those people for a while too. Um, seven, I guess, 70 times. Wow, well, never gets old, does it? No. Place is fucking amazing. I mean, you, you, can't, you just can't believe how many people are there. You know, 
I mean, I've seen pictures of it from the air, but it, it must be just amazing going over the whole thing in a helicopter, you know? I mean, it's like, a, what did it sell, 80,000 tickets? It's probably 110,000 people in there. Okay. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's like a small city. Okay, so, so the one band that sticks out, you're on a bill, the band, you're, they're trying to get you out of there, and you're just like, I have to fucking see this band live. Oh, no, they, you, you gotta. You gotta go. Schedule is the schedule. Yeah. It must piss you off sometimes because you sometimes miss bands. It does. Yeah, sometimes it does. But you usually get to see somebody because, I mean, you can't just, you don't just show up and play. So there's somebody going to be playing for you. Yeah. Um, and after you. We did some stuff with um, Slayer in Italy, for instance. It was a smaller fest. And, <clears throat> and Phil Anselmo was there. I think with the illegals and they were doing Pantera set they were doing Pantera set mm-hmm. and I, that I wanted to see you know I thought that was that was pretty amazing and we you know obviously we just stood right on the side of the stage Phil's a great guy he just let us come over and hang out mm-hmm. sorry Slayer actually okay so, nice nice yeah. so Bobby you want to give out all the social media sites people can get in touch with the band yeah uh, tour dates all that stuff Overkill Facebook uh, Overkill I think Overkill Band at Twitter Okay. Um, Overkill band at Instagram. Um, that's it. You can remember. I've interviewed some guys and they're like, we're, we're out there. I can't remember them all. <laughs> <laughs> you know, the funny thing is, I don't have any personal social media. Okay. I mean, I'm, I'm like a, an absolute dinosaur. Do you manage that the social media as well? As no. You don't. You let someone well, else I have have. guys do it. Okay. I feed them the information. Okay. Um, but I, I couldn't. I'm not an administrator. I don't have any of... I, I just don't want to be involved in it. It, can, it makes me feel dirty. It can, <laughs> it can be tiresome. I would think so. Mm. Yeah. You know... I know some guys are on it constantly. And I just would... I just don't want that in my life. You know? Yeah. I just... I mean, I'm, I'm fine. You know? I, I... I have one account. It's not Facebook. It's sit on my Facebook. And... <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, you only need one good friend for that. Yeah. <laughs> All I have is one friend. It's perfect. All right. So, Bobby, I'll wrap it up there. I can't wait to see the show. I'm sure it's going to be killer. Hmm. First show in two years. I said, overkill, I'll come and I'll try to get an interview with you and, and go see the show. Yeah, that's perfect. Yeah, I'm I'm not that familiar with Prong now. Oh, you love them? Mm. Yeah, I know some of their stuff. I don't know. I, I, I know a lot more of your stuff than theirs. Yeah, I, I love them live. I mean, they, they make a big sound with three dudes. You played with them before? Yeah. Okay. Did a U.S. tour and a European tour. Okay, nice, nice. And we know them from back in New York. I mean, playing Lamore. You know, we've done shows all the way back in the 80s with them. Mm. That club, a lot of people mentioned that, mentioned that to me, saying that it was a mecca of metal in New York. Yeah. So, all right, we'll wrap it up. Good. All right. So, pleasure talking to you again. All right, there you go, Richie's chat with Blitz. And, yeah, he was psyched. I don't know if anybody uh, saw his post the night he was doing it, but basically he said something about, you know, interview and Blitz. Uh, definitely the night does not suck. Super enthused about doing it, and I think you can hear that in his voice during the interview. So, uh, yeah, super interested to find out, you know, what you guys are uh, doing for concerts this year, what you got coming up. And, you know, you want to you wanna let me know? Let me know, uh, you know, what you guys are going to see Definitely hit me up at scott at focusonmetal.net. And uh, like I said, lo- I'd, I'd love to hear what you're going to see. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm hoping, like I said, I've got lots of other tickets on there as well. Girlfriend scored us some really nice tickets to uh, Sammy Hagar. So that one should be uh, should be pretty great. It's always been great to see Sammy. And last time we saw him like in April and we basically froze our ass off. And uh, also his guitar player had had a broken leg. So, uh, yeah, interesting show. But that one should be good. And also, I mean, finally, maybe we see the uh, the Def Leppard Motley crew as well out at uh, Fenway. We'll see whether or not that actually goes as planned or some other new restrictions screw us out of seeing that one. But we got that one going on. And, you know, there's just other ones. I'm sure I'm forgetting them. And it's going to pop up and go, oh, yeah, that's right. We got a show to go to. I know there's at least three or four others that we've gotten tickets for recently. But yeah, I think as of today, right now, the one I am absolutely the most psyched about is the Shanker 50th anniversary tour with, uh, I think she scored us like fifth row seats or something. But again, I'm super interested to find out what you guys have tickets for going to see. 
So uh, again, hit me up, Scott, at FocusOnMetal.net. Let me know um, what's going on. So as far as next show, uh, still kind of tossing things back and forth. What else is new, right? But we are thinking we are going to an old school Focus on Metal discussion episode. And uh, a few things tossing back and forth, but this might be kind of a, you know, maybe either one right after the other multi-show kind of thing, or we may kind of intersperse it throughout the remainder of the year, like we did with the uh, with the Saxon episodes, which you can uh, definitely you can hit that up. You go to uh, focusonmetalpod.com and go to the either search for Saxon or go into the episodes. You'll see the project stuff and. All the Saxon ones will be grouped in there where we went through the whole discography. Lots of good stuff there. But we're thinking next week is going to be one of those old school discussion episodes. And uh, also, just before we head out for this week, I do want to say, uh, you know, big kudos to uh, Mark Striegel transitioning from podcast over into Sirius XM. I think he's doing a great job over there. It's It's a little weird to hear... You know, fellow podcaster that we've uh, been doing stuff with for a long time and, you know, over there on Sirius. But, I mean, good for him for making that jump over there. And, uh, you know, I hope he uh, continues on that gig for a long time. You may remember that uh, him and and John had the uh, the Talking Metal show on Fuse for, I think, like one season. And that was, that was pretty good. I like that. And uh, that just didn't last. So it's good to see Mark back into a mass media format. So uh, good job, Mark, and, uh, you know, keep it going. But anyways, for this week, that's it. There ain't no more. Stick a fork in it. This puppy is done. So for Richie, myself, and everybody else here at Focus on Metal, have yourselves a great metal week. And until we talk to you again, as always, remember... Focus on Metal! is insignificant. Still here? It's over. Go home.